Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Let's thank Ms. Yara Allen again for the gift of song. As many of you know, music was the soul of the civil rights movement. W.E.B. Du Bois calls music the soul of black folks. It really is a universal language and appropriate as we consider this evening in many ways the soul of America or the soul of our nation. Um, welcome to Duke University Chapel for this important conversation uh, titled The Enduring Challenge of a Moral Economy. Fifty years after Dr. King challenged racism, poverty, and militarism. Um, I'm Luke Powery, the Dean of the Chapel here, and it's beautiful to have this conversation come to really the spiritual heart of this university at the center of campus to bring such important topics to the center of campus for conversation and reflection. Um, Duke Chapel, as I look out, there are people from all walks of life here. There are workers and community organizers, elected officials, university leaders, students, staff and faculty, all of God's children coming together around this conversation. And Duke Chapel is a sanctuary for all people. And so we hope that you are feel welcome in this sacred space tonight. 50 years ago, the campus of Duke has been pondering 50 years ago, the vigil in 1968 as an example on campus. But one of those events in 50 years ago in 1968 was the called the Poor People's Campaign. Dr. King said a lot more than I have a dream. Um, he also said that our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And so in his Poor People's Campaign from 1968, he organized with others out of this Christian conviction around the issues of racial equity, economic justice, and peace among nations. All of these issues were interrelated for him, all matters of faith for him. And so 50 years later, here we are having the opportunity to bring together the insights of a preacher and a politician about the present day work toward a just moral economy. And so this is a part of what we call the bridge panel series, where we bridge people from different perspectives, different walks of, of life around shared common interests and concerns, hopefully moving us toward the beloved community of God. If you remember, this panel, or this conversation was scheduled for January, which was going to be a part of the university's uh, King Commemoration Week. And since we had to shift that, maybe it's even appropriate that here we are in the month of April, which is the, the month 50 years ago when Dr. King was assassinated, that we can think about the relevance um, in some ways of these same issues that still haunt us. And so I want to first say thank you to all of our sponsors, co-sponsors tonight, Duke's Divinity School, the Sanford School of Public Policy, and the Office for Institutional Equity. Thank you for all of your support and collaboration around this. If you've been to a bridge panel before, there will be a time for the audience to ask questions. Um, there will be a time, we have student ushers here, 
And so probably, let's say, around 9 o'clock or so, the student ushers will begin, they will hand out cards to you for you to write your question down. And then at some other point, they will make another round to pick those cards up. And then those questions will be asked, probably not all of them, but um, hopefully many of them um, for our panelists. All right, now for the moment you've been waiting for, uh, let me turn to our esteemed guests here who have taken time out of their very busy schedules to be here um, in this space. All the way to my left is the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, National Co-Chair of the Poor. Yes. He is a national co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Here in North Carolina, you may know him for his leadership of the Moral Mondays movement, which continues throughout the country and all the way to the Vatican through the work of this, the nonprofit organization Repairers of the Breach. Dr. Barber is also a graduate of Duke's Divinity School and has been back to campus a number of times as a keynote speaker as well as a preacher in that very pulpit. So it's great to have him here back and his alma mater. Also with us this evening is someone you might recognize, <laughs> the Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator Sanders is now the longest serving independent member of Congress in American history. His 2016 campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination had a focus on issues of economic equality, including universal health care, free tuition at public universities, and a $15 per hour minimum wage. He has said that the issue of wealth and income inequality is the great moral issue of our time. Please, let's welcome both of our guests one more time. We have a preacher and a politician with us. Um, that means they both preach, and so. Um, but I will get a first question in. <laughs> to begin this conversation. <laughs> yeah, really. You, you think that will be your last question? <laughs> Who knows? Um, both of you are public figures. And at times, public figures can become almost non-human, objects receiving cheers and jeers. And this is a humanizing question. Um, in many ways. It's, it's a question about how your biography is linked to your understanding of a moral economy. What, it, what is it in your life history, your family background, education experiences that has led you to your current moral convictions? Well, that is a very important question for me, and I will give you the answer. Uh, I grew up uh, in a family that was not terribly poor, 
It was never a question of whether or not we had enough to eat. But we grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in a rent-controlled, three-and-a-half-room apartment. And the fact that our family struggled economically, and my parents lived with a lot of tension because what my mother wanted to see never really happened. Her dream in life was to own a home of her own. Never happened. Uh, and the problems that not having enough money caused uh, my family is something uh, that I have never forgotten. And then on top of that, uh, my father uh, came to this country from Poland uh, at the age of 17, a Jewish young man fleeing incredible poverty in his community, fleeing anti-Semitism, and came to this country, uh, which was so important for him that despite the fact the family never, never had a lot of money, he was the proudest American that anyone ever saw because it gave him the freedom to do things that he had never dreamed of. Uh, that would have been possible from where he came from. So those combination of factors, uh, the economic struggle that my family went through, which is multiplied by millions of families all over this country, uh, is something that I have never forgotten and certainly influences my work uh, every single day. Thank you. Well, thank you. First of all, um, Dr. Powery, and thank all of you for having us here tonight. And I'm so thankful to um, be here with um, Senator Sanders, whose who's, um, candidacy for the president, and I don't think I've told you this, Bernie, I think about it similar, a little bit like Justice Harlan out of Kentucky, who was the great dissenter in the 1800s. He was the, ju the judge, and the Supreme Court judge was the only dissenter on the, um, when they overturned the Civil Rights Act of 1875 uh, after someone um, was won that well was selected president but did not get the popular vote that's another story that happened in 1877 so I'm not talking about right now <laughs> and uh, and Justice Harlan was the great dissenter on Plessy versus Ferguson but it was his dissent and his writings and his speeches that began to shift the narrative politically and and force this nation to deal with some things and so Senator Sanders, I first want to thank you for the amplifying uh, so much of the voice of the people. Uh, and I think we ought to, we deserve the gift and a great. Um, um, Luke, if I, I was born August 30th, 1963, two days after the march on Washington. My mother said, that she went into labor on the 28th, and I being always being somewhat of a stubborn child, uh, I said to her, let's check out what happens at this thing called the March on Washington, and then we'll talk about being born. And so I was born two days after the March on Washington, mm -hmm. 15 days before uh, four girls were blown up in a Birmingham church on a Sunday morning. I was born after the killing of Mega Evers. For a long time, I didn't know why I cried so much all the time, and I talked to a person, um, counselor, and he talked with me and finally figured out that my mother carried me in a season of great tears, and she was very sensitive. 
the thing that I remember the most from those that I don't around four, it stuck in my memory for a long time. My mother crying and screaming, but my daddy just sitting down on the couch with his head, uh, hand in his head. And I came to learn later that that was when I was about four, almost five, and Dr. King was shot. Um, my parents made a decision. They were in Indianapolis, Indiana. My father had gotten two master's degrees. My mother was working for the government. And he got a call from Washington County, North Carolina, that the schools had still not been desegregated. And this was 1965, 66, 68, 69, 14 years after the Brown. And he, the call said, can you come home and help? And that meant he had to give up his, his economic uh, 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 vitality at that particular time, uproot my family, and put his only son into segregated public schools. But they, my family chose to do that, to come back to help desegregate schools because they understood the connection between systemic racism, not interpersonal racism, but systemic racism, policy racism, and economic equality. And you couldn't have one without having the other, dealing with one without dealing with the other. My father helped workers in Eastern North Carolina get wages. Black workers who had, um, um, had um, were being paid less than white workers at places like the warehouse and, the, and, and Georgia Pacific down in the eastern part of North Carolina. So in my home, it was always stuff going on. And my father carried me everywhere, and I listened um, um, at what was going on and how they were organizing. Lastly, I come from a family of 500 years of preaching on my father's side and 300 years of preaching on my mama's side. <laughs> so I didn't want to have nothing to do with preaching. I, I went to North Carolina Central to go to law school. I never meant to come to Duke to go to divinity school, uh, but in some ways was tracked down. But the one thing about that legacy to both of you is I was taught there was no separation between Jesus and justice. And any attempt to separate the two was heresy. Any attempt to try to have some privatized religion over here that didn't care about economic and injustice and racial injustice over here was empire religion. It was not the religion of Christ. Mm. And, and, and then diversity, uh, Luke, what, what, what makes me so hard about fusion, we got to get black and white and brown and red and yellow and gay and straight and young and old people together. We have to find language that's not so puny that it separates us on the front end. Why is that? Because I'm the result of fusion. I'm part Tuscarora Indian, part black, and part white. All of that runs through my DNA. And I didn't turn out too bad. So fusion works. <laughs> but not only does it work in terms of, of how a family can be, or it will work for this nation. And that's what kind of drives me autobiographically. Thank you. You know, the, the title tonight is, or it says, A Moral Economy. Can you say something, both of you, um, about what is a moral economy and what makes it moral and this fusion then? Why, why, why is the intersection so important? Race, uh, poverty, militarism, and obviously there are others. Why are the intersections critical? Well, I think when we talk about a moral economy, 
we talk about justice, and we talk about the gross immorality of three people in this country owning more wealth than the bottom half of the American people. Now, when Yarrow led this program off with her beautiful singing, she talked about, we won't be silent anymore. And the major way, and I know Reverend Barber talks about this all of the time, the way we bring about change is having the courage to talk about reality that you may not see on a TV and you surely will not hear discussed in the United States Congress. That's right. So when we talk about a moral economy, we start off in this country recognizing that we are the wealthiest country in the history of the world. There is no excuse for 40 million Americans living in poverty. No excuse for 30 million Americans having no health insurance and many more who are underinsured and can't afford to go to a doctor. No excuse for hundreds of thousands of bright young people unable to go to college because their families lack the necessary income. No excuse for turning our backs on God's earth and allowing climate change to devastate this planet. On all of those issues, on all of those issues, the truth is, despite what you may see in the media where they're telling us we're a divided nation, we're a divided nation on major issues after major issues in terms of justice, economic justice, raising the minimum wage to a living wage. In my view, 15 bucks an hour. not giving tax breaks to billionaires, but in fact asking them to start paying their fair share of taxes. This is not just something that we believe in. This is what the overwhelming majority of the American people believe. So a moral economy is one that says in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, all of our people should be able to live with dignity and security. And that's what this struggle is all about. Dignity and security. Um, I want to quote a little text. Um, because morality can be for some people, it's kind of nebulous out there. But, but we as a country and people of faith have some, some documents that guide the framing of morality. Um, and as Senator Sanders and I 
were talking in the back. It's amazing when you hear people talk about what he just said and they call that radical somehow or, 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 or left. I hate that left-right stuff. I, I think he's got a left hand and a right hand. I've got a left hand and a right hand. Who told you you were on the left and the people doing wrong were on the right? I mean, who, who came up with this language that actually limits us, you know? So, let me quote a text. The first duty, taking care of the widows, the orphans, and the unfortunate is the first duty of a civilized and a Christian nation. You know where that comes from? Not the Bible. That's Article 11 of the North Carolina Constitution that was written in 1868 when white and black people after slavery got together, poor whites and poor blacks took over the politics of the state and said, how do we write a document that says we no longer will stand for slavery and injustice? And they put that in the Constitution. And so every politician in this state swears to uphold that. Let me, let me see if I can quote another text. Um, You're going to make the legislature very nervous okay. if you keep saying that. All right. Well, they, they put their hands on the Bible and swear to uphold the Constitution. They ought to know what's in both documents. <laughs> or they shouldn't put their hands on it. All right. So, real quickly, to ensure domestic tranquility, to establish justice, to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare. Our Constitution says that our morality as a nation, those are the four pillars. If you add the fifth one, it'd be we and not I. And, and it says after that, you don't really have a freedom that would be, you should pass on to, to, to future posterity unless it ensures domestic tranquility establishes justice. Now, that's the Constitution. The Bible says, Isaiah 10, Woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their right and make women and children their prey. The Bible says in Luke chapter 4, the first sermon Jesus gave, he said, you must preach good news to the poor. And the word poor there is patokos, comes from a Greek word, which means those who have been made poor by economic exploitation. His last sermon said, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick, did you care for me? And he says, I'm talking now to the governments not about individual charity, but to the government. So if that's our moral framework, we claim to be a nation of deep religious values and deep constitutional values, well then let's lay this on top of, is it constitutional and does it live up to our deepest religious values to say we have less voting rights today than we had 50 years ago? And for more than 1,700 days, the Congress of these United States has refused to fix the Voting Rights Act. If you use what I just said as a moral critique, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. Does it add up that we have 400 families that make an average of $95,000 an hour while we lock people up who simply want 15? If you use those, those texts I just, it doesn't line up. What does, we have 4 million children who are, have lead in their water. We can buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water. Does that, that no, that, that's not establishment of justice. When, when we have, when we pit Muslims and Christians against each other and gay people and straight people against us, that's not ensuring domestic tranquility. When we put 50 to 60 cents of every discretionary dollar into war, 
and not into the upbuilding of the community, that is immoral. It does not match what we put our hands on the, on the Bible and swear to uphold in the Constitution. And so a moral economy, first in America, is to take seriously every politician. We had 26 presidential debates and we didn't have one hour on poverty. One hour on voting rights, not one. And when you look at systemic racism as it, look, as, as it looked at through the lens of voting suppression, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, a war economy, and the false moral narrative of Christian nationalism, we have to say in this moment, if we love America, if we love this democracy, if we love the moral framework of the Constitution and the Bibles, whether it be the Quran or the Holy Bible that we put our hands on when politicians swear themselves in the office, then we have to change our domestic policy agenda or stop lying. You can't have it both ways. Can't have it both ways. I mean, where, where do you see the, what, what, what are the obstructions to this moral economy? What gets in the way of any progress or seemingly any, any progress? We should not, again, uh, we have got to go into our hearts and talk about issues that sometimes are uncomfortable and issues that very often are not going to be seen on TV or heard in the Congress. And here is a simple truth from my perspective. And that is you have a Congress which is way, way, way out of touch with where most Americans are because that Congress is listening to wealthy campaign contributors and not to their constituents. So right now, we have a Supreme Court decision called Citizens United, which is one of the worst Supreme Court decisions ever passed, that was passed by a five to four vote. And what that decision says that if you are the Koch brothers, or another billionaire, you can spend as much money as you want on campaigns to elect candidates who will represent the wealthy and the powerful. And that is precisely what is happening right now. Now, we have to think when we talk about morality or when we talk about democracy, what it means that one family and a few other billionaires will spend in this coming midterm election $400 million, one family. And what you see in Washington is a reflection of that money. Now, I get around my state a lot, and I get around the country every now and then. Nobody has ever come up to me, honest to God, and we're in a chapel, <laughs> Nobody has ever come up to me and said, Bernie, I think a major priority is to throw 30 million people right. off of the health insurance they currently have. That was the first major piece of legislation we dealt with this year. 
Nobody has ever come up to me and said, Bernie, you know what we really need to do economically? We need to give billionaires and large multinational corporations hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks. Nobody in my political life has ever asked me to do that. What people have said to me is raise the minimum wage so people don't have to work for seven and a quarter an hour. What people have said to me is we need health care for all people. What people have said to me is let's deal with criminal justice. Let's deal with immigration. But in answer your question, and we got to be clear about this, we have got to be, have the courage to be clear about it. The Congress of the United States is dominated by big money interest, and these billionaires are incredibly greedy. They are prepared to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and education in order to give tax breaks to people who don't need them. That is the reality, and we got to stand up and fight that reality. Senator Sanders, and I, I think that one of the things we have to be as the people is understand the moment we're in. And this is not normal politic, political moment. We're in the third reconstruction of America. America went through a first reconstruction in the 1800s, and it was undermined by some of the same types of policies, attack on voting rights, cutting taxes, uh, uh, filling the courts with extremists, uh, selecting a president without electing a president. If you read from 1868 to 1896, you see almost a lining up of some of the same thing. And, and at that time, the group that undermined the, the Reconstruction was called the Redemption Movement. They claimed to be very religious, but they were very irreligious. Then we had the Civil Rights Movement, the se a second Reconstruction of America. That's why Dr. King said four, four score, five score years ago, what he was saying was we thought we had done this 100 years ago. Now we're back doing it. And remember the March on Washington wasn't about kumbaya and race, it was about job and, and justice. And, and then right in the middle as Dr. King began to prepare the Poor People's Campaign with Jews and welfare mothers, you got Al McShirley sitting over there who was an original member of the Poor People's Campaign that Dr. King invited because of his work in Eastern Kentucky. And Dr. King said, if we don't bring together black poor people and black working class people, because sometimes people say working class and it's a code word for white. Black working class people and white working class people, black poor people and white poor people, brown poor people, brown working class people, uh, labor rights workers together in a movement. And so as he was doing that, the Southern strategy began. And the Southern strategy said, we've got to find a way to keep these people from coming together. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk, we're not going to talk racist like George Wallace, we're going to come up with code words for racism to split black, white workers and poor whites from their natural allies, black and brown people, which has always been a goal in this democracy by the aristocracy. And the goal was, we're not going to talk race, we're going to talk about tax cuts. We're going to talk about entitlement reform. We're going to talk about um, states' rights and gun rights and forced busing. But uh, if you read books like Kevin Phillips' book, uh, and, and then read later comment critiques on him, 
that was code words. So when we see something like, for instance, Trump or whatever, what or the Congress that we see today, we're talking about an audience that's been cultivated for 50 years. And it was so, they were so good at it, we have to give them that, that they removed poverty from the political discussion as a moral issue. They removed systemic racism, not interpersonal racism, nobody's gonna say they hate a black person or hate a brown person, but systemic racism from the moral political discussion. And so one of the first things I believe is, is a hindrance is that in this moment, we have to see that some things we see now are the signs of a moral malady. One person is not our problem, it's the narrative. And we've got to change the narrator which is why a few weeks ago I was with white poor women in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky, but I also was with poor women and black folk in Alabama. And they are uniting and coming together in this poor people's campaign and saying, the, pol the politics, rap no matter, the Congress can't do it until the will of the people make it happen. Right. And so we have to have a movement that says there are five interlocking injustices we're gonna combine, systemic racism, Systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, militarism, and the false moral narrative of, of so-called religious nationalism. Now lastly, what's a hindrance? We have to deal with voter suppression. Two ways. One way is we gotta have massive voter mobilization. We can't wait until the laws are changed. So we gotta have massive voter mobilization, but we have to have teach people in many of the places, southern places particularly, do, and help them understand, do you understand that when, you, when people use, they use racialized voter tactics, gerrymandering, cutting same-day registration, uh, photo ID, those are racist tactics. But when they get in office, they pass bills that hurt mostly white people. We've got to unpack that. All over every state that engaged in massive voter suppression tactics, also blocks living wages, also denied Medicaid expansion, also attack the LGBTQ community, also attacks immigrants, also, um, so the people who get elected using racialized voter tactics then turn around and hurt mostly poor whites because the majority of poor people are white women and children and the disabled. We've got to help folks see that that we're being played against one another, and that's critical. Can I just, go ahead, please. In my view, and I would not be here tonight, my life would not be what it was without the inspiration of Dr. King. And Dr. King was not simply a great African-American leader, right. he was a great American leader who happened to be black. And we don't hear about it too often. We hear about the incredibly courageous work he did desegregating That's the South. We hear about that, and that was an enormous, unbelievable achievement. What we don't hear about was when he was assassinated, and the Reverend and I were in Memphis a few weeks ago. You know what he was doing in Memphis? It wasn't a civil rights demonstration. He was standing with sanitation workers who were being ruthlessly exploited, black sanitation workers, low wages, terrible working conditions, and they wanted to form a union. That is why he was in Memphis. And 
as the Reverend indicated, in the last months of his life, what he was talking about was the need to bring low-income blacks and whites and Latinos and Native Americans, Asian Americans together to change the national priorities of this country. And what speaks to the extraordinary greatness of this man, and we don't talk about this enough, is he received the Nobel Peace Prize. And everybody loved this guy. Well, not everybody, but many people did. Mm -hmm. But you know what he did? With unbelievable courage that we must absorb into ourselves, he said to the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, who signed the most comprehensive Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act, he said, Mr. President, you are wrong on the war in Vietnam, and we need to spend less on the military so that we can take care of people in this country in need. That was an extraordinary, courageous action on his part. And look, I'm glad Senator Sanders brought that up because I'm, and I'm glad Senator Sanders did the quotes, civil rights issue, because that is our national memory when it comes to civil rights and it's so flawed, it's so flawed. Dr. King was talking about economics in 1958 in a sermon called Paul's Letter to American Christian when he talked about the, how the 1% was ruling over the 99%. <laughs> in his I Have a Dream speech, it wasn't I Have a Dream, that wasn't even the title of the speech. It was normalcy is no longer acceptable. And he talked about economics, the bank, the vaults that keep coming back insufficient funds. The reason he got so much attention around this Poor People's Campaign that actually Mary Wright Edelman brought to him was because he connected systemic racism and poverty and militarism, was building out this multiracial uh, community. But when he did that, let's be real, civil rights organizations left him. Black folk left him. Ministers left him. Politicians, he lost his open invitation to the, the White House. And on that last night, everybody looks at where he said, um, I, I've been to the mountaintop. That was a closing. He had done that before. But what he did say that night before he got there was, he said, we have to give ourselves to this movement. He said, America is sick. He said that the last night. We don't talk about that. Sick with racism, sick with militarism, sick with classism. The sermon he was going to preach that Sunday that he called into Ebenezer was why America may go to hell if she doesn't deal with her economic divisions and racial divisions and military. And then he said, though, hope, nothing would be more tragic than for us to fall back, turn back now. So why do, why do I say that real quickly? Look, one of the things I get frustrated by as a preacher and, and uh, looking at our political systems, take for instance right now, we have more, every night on CNN, we talking about storming, every night. The most pornographic thing that has happened in America was, to me, the illicit relationship between the Supreme Court and big business that produced the bastard child of Citizens United, right? We, every night, every night, we talking about this guy, Cohen, whatever his name is, that lawyer. 
What about the fact that right now our Congress is poised to put a man on the, on the federal bench from North Carolina who was the ally of Jesse Hams and wrote all of the massive voter suppression in, in this state that we actually beat? Stacking the, but that's not being talked. We all talking about Russia. Now, I don't know, I don't know what Russia did, but I do know what racist voter suppression did. I know what that did. And I, for the life of me, I can't understand why even Democrats, I'm like, how is it that we allow today is over 1,700 days since the Congress has had the opportunity to fix the Voting Rights Act? Why that wasn't a major, major, major issue in the election? And now, why are we stuck on Russia? when we had 868 fewer voting sites in the black and brown community in 2016, millions of folks, 35% of black Alabamans have been blocked from the vote because of, 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 of photo ID. Gerrymandering is, is stacking the, the, the Congress. And here's my point, that's what I'm trying to say is, it's not just what extremists do, it's what progressives sometimes don't do. And if, if progressives keep a neoliberal, a neoliberal argument that simply wants to talk about economics and thinks that civil rights and economic justice don't go hand in hand is not the kind of philosophy that's going to deliver America into a third reconstruction. We have to deal with it together. Poor moderator, Poor moderator between a politician and a preacher. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But let me throw in something else that nobody talks about. And I'll bet most of you don't even know it because of the way media conceives what's important. When people all over this country say we need more money for education, and by the way, thank you, teachers in Oklahoma and in West Virginia for standing up. Well, we don't have enough money to educate our kids. But in the recently passed budget, which had a lot of good things in it, by the way, military spending increased by $165 billion over a two-year period. We have been at war in Afghanistan for 17 years war in Iraq for 15 years. We spent more on the military than the next 12 nations combined. And talk about what appears in the media and not that you will never hear. But that is the reality. And as a nation, we have got to determine, and Dr. King was very strong on this. That's what he meant when he talked about militarism. Do we want to be engaged in never-ending war and take the resources of this country which can be used for the children and the elderly and the poor? Do we want to put that into nuclear weapons or do we want to rebuild this country so that justice prevails for all? That is the issue we must address. Yeah. I know they're, they're beginning to collect um, some questions from the audience, but there, there are two 
two things that I definitely want to um, raise and get to. Both of you have mentioned this evening um, about this kind of bifurcation, whether it's rich, poor, black, white, these divisions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and the, the necessity to sort of come together. And I wonder if you have some wisdom about how do we actually help people get together to actually work toward the moral yeah. economy? Well, one of the things, and, and, I, and as Senator Sanders said, as he travels the nation and with the Poor People's Campaign, uh, National Call for Moral Revival, we've gone where the people are. And you go among the people. I've, from, from, I'm headed to Gray's Harbor that has the highest zip code of poor, homeless, white millennials. But I've also been down in Mississippi uh, and, and, and organizing there. This Monday, with the Apache Nation, has sent out a call to the tribes of this, of the first tribe, the first nation of this country. We're having an all-day peace about people coming together. And we have to come together and show people the interlocking injustices that necessitate an intersectional fusion re response. Secondly, I think we have to change the language. See, our language is divisive. If you're on the right and I'm on the left and you're on and you're um, um, Republican and I'm Democrat, there comes times in histories where we in history where we need statesmen and stateswomen who lift a different language. That's why the moral language. You never heard Dr. King talking about Democrat versus Republican, left versus right. Even when Kennedy talked about the Civil Rights Act, he called it a moral issue before America. Teddy Roosevelt, 1912, talked about moral issues, education. He was talking about health care in 1912, long before Obama, Bernie, or any of us. But it was a moral issue. Francis Perkins, who was with Frederick uh, Franklin Roosevelt, talked about the moral issue of, of living wages and, and welfare and social security. So we have to change the language. We cannot keep using the language of the, the, the talking heads because language can be extraordinarily divisive. Thirdly, we have to decide in this country if we're gonna deal with violence. Now, what I mean by violence? We had these, I was talking to some students the other day, they met with me in DC who were part of the big march against gun violence. But these students came to talk to me and said, because they said they are clear that violence is not just what happened in Florida or in our schools, as horrendous as that is. They came to talk to me and talked about joining up with the Poor People's Campaign because they know that nearly 200,000 people die every year from low wealth. That's violence. Um, Harvard said some years ago that for every one million people, every 500,000 people denied Medicaid expansion, 2,800 people die. So if that's a million people, that's 5,600, and there are 37 million people out of health care right now in America. If you multiply 37 million, you know, times, uh, um, yeah, when you do the math, 37 times 5,600. I'm the preacher, I'm not a uh, mathematician. But, but that you take the 37 and multiply that by 5,600. That means thousands of people are dying. And, and, we, and we go in the street when, uh, when a cop shoots an unarmed black person, and we should. We march by the thousands when we should. But what about these people that are dying in corners and in crevices and in shadows? Because of, not because God called them home, right. but because of policy. And then what, 
we have to challenge this notion where preachers cover up the immorality of politicians in policy and they will go in and pray and consecrate politicians while those same politicians are praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, on the poor and the broken and the hurting among us. We have to challenge that. The Reverend made a very, very important point. And that is there is massive pain and death taking place all over this country that doesn't make CNN because it is, it is poor people, it is working people yep. who are suffering and dying. Now to answer your question, here is some good news and we are making some progress and I am not unoptimistic about the political future. And that is on issue after issue, it turns out that most Americans are on the same side. And our job, it seems to me, from a political perspective, is to do two things. And that is to make it clear to the American people what a progressive agenda is, an agenda that works for working people, for white and black and Latino, for all people. And when you lay that agenda out, it turns out that the vast majority of people are in support. In America today, a fairly strong majority of Americans believe that health care is a right, not a privilege. On immigration reform, a strong majority of Americans believe not only that we should protect the 1.8 million people in DACA or are eligible for DACA, but we need to move to comprehensive immigration reform and a path toward citizenship. The vast majority of Americans understand that our criminal justice system is racist and it is broken. And that the war on drugs was a failed and destructive effort that wrecked the lives of millions of people. So what you are seeing today in state after state, people are saying and state governments are moving in that direction. We're tired of locking up people, for example, or giving criminal records to somebody because they possess marijuana at a time when half of the country has used marijuana. So half of the answer to the Dean's question is bringing forth a progressive agenda that makes sense to the vast majority of the people. The second part of that agenda is also what Dr. King and what Reverend Barbara teach us, is we can have all the wonderful ideas out there. They don't mean anything unless you 
and tens of millions of other Americans are prepared to mobilize, stand up, and fight back. And the good news is we are seeing that as well. So it is fighting for a progressive agenda, having the courage, and I know it's difficult, to take on a billionaire class whose greed is destroying this country, mobilize people around a humane agenda, and when we do that, we're going to make this country look very, very different than it is today. Luke, yes, sir. This before. Mm -hmm. I, I want to just step back to this moment of, of reconstruction because whenever there's a reconstruction moment, uh, Dr. King called it a Kairos moment, um, there's always a remnant uh, that has to stand up to pull other people in. You know, I know in times like these, people tend to think you don't have a movement unless you got a half million people in the street. And sometimes we need to re resist that because a lobbyist is one person and they get what they want. If one person's constitutional values is, is de denied, we should be concerned about it. Mm. Most of the movements, please don't forget, don't, don't misrevise the past. Birmingham started with about 50 some people. The first moral Monday was 17 people. Now it grew to thousands, but it was 17 people that had been, and it was others who had been working together for years. So two, three things that I think we have to do. We have to decide that we are working to save the heart and soul of the democracy, not any party. The heart and soul, the party, the party will be okay part of if we can get the heart and soul of the democracy in the right way. I knew I wasn't going to get too many hand claps on that, but that's all right. And, 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 and because we've got, we're, in, we're not just in a party moment. Even the party we like has got to be stirred up. If, we're not, if we don't have a will of the people, some people could get, could get elected in this, in this resistance, and then as soon as they get elected, fall right back into the same old pattern. I'm not talking about leaving parties. I'm talking about having a movement. Dr. When Dr. King once uh, and A. Philip Randolph were told by two presidents, go out and make me do it. That's what Roosevelt told A. Philip Randolph. That's what Johnson told King. Secondly, I think we have to have a moral movement in our deepest moral and religious values that puts a face on the facts. A lot of the things I'm doing now, look, we're trying to make sure if we're talking about poor people, they're here, they're, they're in the voice. Like the students at this campus right now that are fighting for 15, they're on Duke's campus. We gotta lift them up. And then, and then, and then, and then lastly, we have to have a fusion, I think I call it a moral fusion agenda, that it's not just black people talking about voting rights and white people talking about economics, but white people talking about voting rights and understanding that black people talking about economics and us cross-fertilizing cross our issues so that we can't be divided. Can't be divided. And then I think we have to have a season. That's why the Poor People's Campaign is going to have 40 days of action. Last week we had 43 trainings in 30 states of people who are prepared to put their bodies and their minds on the line in 30 states and the District of Columbia to engage in massive voter mobilization, to build power among the poor, because we have to have a movement. And I would, I would say one thing here respectfully to, to the senator as he's helped me on some things tonight. 
there is, there's two kind of movement we got to have. We have to have a movement that will, that will, that the majority of Americans agree with. But we got to have a movement that will change the minds. Because, see, if we only in this country did what the majority agree with, some of us would still be enslaved. Some of us would still have Jim Crow, right? So we have to have movements that change the consciousness and the climate of what's going on. And part of that means anybody who's talking about working class must add poor to that language. If we cannot say the word poor, because there are not 40 million poor people, there are 140 million people who are in some way poor or working poor, and we must, we must not just talk about working class, we must talk about the poor and the working class and demand that nobody be left out of the narrative. Thank you. As the questions come forward from the audience, let me just ask you. That looks you like both. an offering plate. Yeah, offering plate. <laughs> we, we know are, down we south, Senator, we make you pay an offering when you come to church. Um, my question to you both is how, in this work, how do you maintain hope? I will speak on, on a personal level. Is I have been blessed with the opportunity not only to go around my own beautiful state of Vermont, but to go all over this country. And you cannot imagine the incredibly beautiful people who are out there. People of all colors, all religions, people who came to this country from abroad. These are, when you talk to thousands of people and young people, who have a vision of a non-racist America, a non-sexist America, do not underestimate the decency of people in this country, especially this younger generation. Reverend talked about what these young people in Florida did after the tragedy at their high school and how they mobilized young people all over this country. And we are seeing that, I mean, we're seeing that with the minimum wage movement. We're seeing that time and time again. So I gain optimism by simply meeting extraordinary people who are prepared, in fact, to stand up for justice. And that makes me very, very hopeful about the kind of country we're going to leave my seven grandchildren. So I am not unoptimistic. I am hopeful for the future of this country. I'm glad you used the word hope because I often get asked these, you know, what keeps you optimistic? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, that's not a moral language for me. Hope actually grows up out of despair. Uh, has to deal with despair, has to have its eyes wide open. And part of hope is, um, you know, developing moral imagination that is willing to question uh, the normal narrative, the normative narrative, and just the ability to question that narrative while that narrative is still strong is a sign of hope because it means that I'm not limited to, to what I see in front of me. I have an if I can have a moral imagination, then we can have some moral implementation. And what gives me hope um, is that mother 
uh, down in El Paso that I met, that I was there the day she challenged the border security and we walked in the middle of the Rio Grande River so she could touch her husband that she had not seen for 16 years who had been kicked out of this country and her children. Or the young uh, woman in Seattle that came to one of our mass meetings who stood up, Senator Sanders, and said, I'm joining the Poor People's Campaign because I'm a white redneck. And I said, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. She said, no, let me talk. She said, I'm telling you who I am. I'm homeless. I'm, she said, and I am the white trash that these rich Americans forgot to burn. She said, and I'm going to hook up with black folk and do this for Or the mother in Alabama who went through depression because her daughter died in her arm, named Vina, her daughter named Vina, because Alabama refused to expand Medicaid. And the governor and the legislator down there were so harsh, they refused to expand Medicaid, used racial reasons for doing it. But the majority of the people that got hurt were white. But this mother, her child died in her arm. And she's crying with tears in her ears, I mean in her eyes. She said, I'm, I'm out of depression now, I'm ready to fight. Um, or the veteran, the brother who's a veteran, who fought in the wars, who's against militarism. Not somebody who's never fought, but a person who fought. Or Ezekiel, who's the young boy who is the father of a, of a preacher in sanctuary. A little boy. Um, or the fight for 15, when I see them in all their diversity, willing to take the street. My mama who one day said to me when she saw the Supreme Court roll back voting rights, she looked at me one day, Senator Sanders, she's 84 years old, still working at the school she desegregated. And she looked at me and she said, she started crying. She said, I never thought I'd have a child 50 years ago that would still be fighting for voting rights. And then she stopped crying and looked at me and said, but you better fight. She said, you better fight. Or my daughter, who, my daughter, who had hydrocephalus and was operated, interestingly enough, on Ben Carson, who, who wrote him and challenged him to say, why do you want your patients to die? And who said, Daddy, I, may not, I, wasn't, I didn't think I'd live to be 18, but now that I'm 18, I'm going to vote, I'm going to fight, and I'm not going to quit until everybody like me has guaranteed health care. Those are the stories that constantly feed my hope. There, there are several, many questions here, um, and of course we probably won't get to all of them, but let me um, offer a few. Let's begin with this one, and you've mentioned millennials at different points and young people, and here's a question. Um, recently, a group of students disrupted the university president's speech to deliver in, in quotes, peop, the people's state of the university. What do you think about this movement of students and the value of disruptive politics? Well, disruptive politics um, is quite biblical. As long as the disruption is nonviolent and the disruption is not just about being disruptive but about changing and about making things better for others. Uh, the Bible actually, Jesus was a disruption. <laughs> His first sermon was a disruption. Uh, a good Jewish brother would know that Isaiah 58 says, cry loud and spare not. So this business of disrupting 
we we have to sometimes challenge, step in the middle of, and to and to change the narrative. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival, is going to be disrupted, but it's disrupted with a destiny, and that destiny is a more equal and a fairer country and the saving the soul of this democracy. And it's not just being disrupted for people, but I challenge folk when they lead movements not just to do it for people, but with them. So the Poor People's Campaign is not for poor people, it's with poor people who have a right, like Fannie Lou Hamer and others, even in the middle of a democratic convention, to say, if you don't do this right, I question America and questioning powers that keep people poor and broken and divided is always in order, particularly if it's deeply moral and deeply nonviolent. I believe that in my soul. You know, the great moments in American history were all about disruption. In the 1930s, 1930s, when workers in the automobile industry in Michigan were unable to form a union, That's right. they took over the factory. That's, That's pretty disruptive. Right. When young African Americans couldn't get a cup of coffee at Woolworths right. in the South, they sat in. That's disruptive. When women in this country did not have the right to vote, they went on hunger strikes. That was disruptive. So our job, our job is to make it clear to people that in a democracy, we have the rights to create a new country with a new vision. And one of the impediments that we have is that we have been told over and over again, you can't do it. Right. You can't do it. What makes you think that we can have health care for all people in this country? You're nuts. Can't be done. What makes you think that we can have tuition-free public colleges or universities? What makes you think that we can end racism in the United States? You're thinking too big. And our job is to rethink the limitations that are placed on our minds about what we can accomplish. And when we understand that even if we don't have a PhD in education, we could run for the school board, that we could run for state legislature right. or Congress, mm. that what we need is a good heart and the ability to work hard. When we understand that reality, we are going to transform that country because millions of people are going to step over that hurdle. And that is what we've got to do. Luke. Yes, sir. You know, um, um, Bernie Sanders is, a, is, is being quite prophetic because I was taught at Duke, that's the three things that prophets do when they challenge. They challenge the injustice, 
they announce the, 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 the pain that's going to be caused if you keep on doing the injustice, and they were always disruptive announcements, but then they also give the people hope. Because when people don't believe that change is possible, and one thing that has happened to us with this instant news and always seeing things mm. is that I heard somebody the other day said, we've never seen anything like this before in America. I said, what? Do you know how it, we, this is just so bad? Well, it is, we're announcing some tough stuff, but people have overcome worse. Exactly. Slavery, the lack of women, the right to vote, uh, the, the fight for LGBTQ rights, the fight against Jim Crow, the Holocaust. The, I mean, the, we have to sometimes go backwards to go forward. And remember that people before, I said to some folk one time, Harriet Tubman got 500 people out of slavery. She said she could have got more if some of the people realized they were in slavery. But anyway, she got 500 people out of slavery. She didn't have a cell phone. She didn't have Twitter. She didn't have email. She didn't have Google. She didn't have YouTube. All she had was a made-up mind, a heart for justice, moss on the north side of the tree, the north star in the sky. Now, she did care a 38. I have to tell you that. And the reason she cared a 38 was not so much to shoot the people chasing her, but whenever a slave decided to go back, she would say, you're going to be free one way or the other. <laughs> you're either going to go to heaven, but you're not going to go back and tell on us. But the point I'm trying to make it is people have overcome worse with less. We can overcome this with all that we have if we stand together. couple more uh, questions here. Um, what do you think would be the best way to foster dialogue, not with just the educated elite, but the common man, the, the uninformed, the disinterested, or the skeptic? Well, I think what, I'm, what, what we have found is going to those places. Uh, the Poor People's Campaign, I see Betty in the back who's helped to lead our nonviolent training, and I see a bunch of folks. We've actually been on a, for the last two years, underneath the media, going into the communities, going into the places, being in the homes, being with people, listening to them, inviting them to help lead a movement, not just somebody else do it for them. There is, you know, if there's any one thing that, that I'm concerned about with, our, with politics today, it is, is so auditorium driven and is so, um, um, so uh, programmed and staged, you know, and, and we, we, there's, nothing, there's nothing more important than something Jesus said one day. He said, I must need go by Samaria. Everybody was going to the big city and the big place. And Jesus said, I must go by Samaria. Samaria was the unwanted place. And so in our social justice life, and particularly I say this to clergy, we have got to get out of just the pulpit on Sunday morning and get our teachings in the public square and on the back roads and the alleys and the dark roads of this America where people every day have incredible courage against overwhelming odds and they deserve to be heard. And so the answer to the question is we have to leave the safety and go among the people. Well, if I could just pick up on that, uh, we made 
during my presidential campaign a very intentional effort to go to places mm -hmm. that no one had yeah. gone to before. There is a county in southern West Virginia called McDowell County, mm -hmm. which has, I believe, the lowest life expectancy of any county in the United States. It's 20 years lower in terms of life expectancy than wealthy counties a few hours away. Massive levels of opioid addiction, unemployment, lack of education. And we went to McDowell County quite intentionally to hear mm -hmm. from those people. We went to the Pine Ridge Native American Reservation. Mm -hmm. You know what the life expectancy is in Pine Ridge? It is below 50 years. It is the equivalent of a poor third world country. And the voices and the pain of the Native American people are very, very rarely heard. We went to high rises That's right. in the Bronx, New York, and I will never forget, and I don't mean to be boastful here, but that was the intention of the campaign. Mm -hmm. We went to the Bronx, South Bronx, where no one had ever held a rally, and the police said, please don't do it. Yep. There had been a murder there some weeks before. They were afraid that people, what would happen when people came together. If my memory is correct, we had 18,000 people out in the South Bronx in a totally peaceful rally. Point is, you gotta go to where the people are. You gotta hear their pain. And you have to bring them into the political process. Right now, in America today, we have one of the lowest voter turnouts of any major country on earth. Four years ago, 37% of the American people voted because people have given up. They don't see anybody or very few people That's right. who recognize the reality of their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have to say to those people, we do understand what you're going through, that your wife died because you didn't have any health insurance that your kid is strung out on drugs because unemployment in that area is 20 or 25%. Or if you're a black parent, that you can't send your kids out to the grocery store for fear of what might happen. We have got to make that the news of the day, not Stormy Daniels, but that reality. Mm -hmm. yeah. Amen. Amen. And when we do that, when we do that, there is no limit to the kinds of changes that we can bring about. Mm. And I, I think, Luke, I, I see the media here, mm -hmm. and you know, you all have been beat up a lot by certain people. This, but you have such a powerful role to not allow the tweets to determine right. your stories. Mm. Um, it is. You know, it, it really is, it's kind of a, a military tactic, diversion. And we, we've got to have a recovery of that kind of media that goes in and tells these stories. I'm thinking about, Bernie, you were in West Virginia a few weeks ago, I was in Eastern Kentucky, in Harlan County, the county named after Judge Harlan. Now, I had heard certain people on TV talk about 
helping the coal miners and so on and so on. So I went to meet with the coal miners, black and white coal miners. My granddaddy was a coal miner in West Virginia, so I went to meet with them, found out what really happened was, first of all, the coal miners had a solid union. Then the, a company bought the coal mine, a big of Arca, I think it was, and politicians allowed them to close it down for a year without grandfathering the unions back in and reopen it without the union. You don't hear that. It should be heard. And you don't hear that a lot of these coal miners, they want retraining. They want new kinds of jobs. They're not just interested in somebody, quote, saving the coal mine. They just want retraining and new jobs and using technology, all those things. And while we were there, while we were, we were there, one of them died in the mine. And I said, why did that happen? They said, well, you hear all this talk about deregulation of safety. This is what happened. Now, it's one thing for us to go. And that's why it's so important that politicians and moral leaders go to these places and bring the media with them. The last thing is you mentioned voting. People vote, I believe, when they see themselves in the issues. Not just when they hear a statistic, but when they see themselves. That's why it's so important. If you're going to motivate poor people, you have to say the word poor. If you're going to move black people, it, yes, it's good to have a black candidate, but what's more important is to deal with issues straight up. I tell you what, let a group of politicians say we're going to make the restoration of the Voting Rights Act a full upfront political issue. We're going to fight to end racist gerrymandering. We're going to implement automatic registration to vote at 18 years of age. We're going to fight for early voting in, in every state and same-day registration. And watch if you don't have a massive turnout of African-Americans and brown folk. Huh? Let somebody decide. Let somebody decide that they're going to have the courage to say that immigrants, that the real issue why people don't want brown, because they always talk about brown immigrants, you ever notice that, is because it will change the political dynamic. It's not about crime. It's not about any of that. It's not about changing the political demographics in this country. Let somebody point out that this last tax reform, there wasn't tax reform, tax cut, wasn't some, that, that we have not seen I was screaming at the TV trying to say, somebody say it. We've not seen this kind of tax cut and transfer of wealth from the backs of poor and working people since the transfer of wealth in slavery. At some point, we've got to sharpen our critique and help to open and expand the vision of Americans because I believe that there are a whole lot of conscientious people and people of deep moral character if they hit, they're like bones in the dry, dry valley. But if they, but bones can hear. And if they can hear, that's what's so powerful about your candidacy and others about, if they can hear that sound and hear themselves, we're going to see a massive turnout. Not just because of one person that they're angry with, because they want to see a fundamental redirection of the nation. And let me just add to that the interconnectedness of things. Sometimes as well, criminal justice, system is broken, system is racist, we have too many right. people in jail. That's one issue. But let me connect it to the political process. I didn't know this, I must confess, mm -hmm. until a few months ago. In the state of Florida, 20% oh. of African Americans are ineligible to vote because they have felony convictions. 
20% in a state which is a toss-up state. So you have a criminal justice system which not only wrecks people's lives, but takes away their democratic rights to change their state and their country. How outrageous is that? That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, it, and it speaks, I know we're, we're talking over the moderate, but Senator, that speaks to it to give hope to the power that people who are progressive, people who want to see this country do, uh, uh, have. See, I was taught, uh, I'm going to confess this on TV, I, I'm sorry, but I used to hustle a little pool in, in college. <laughs> I wasn't always a preacher. I used to hustle a pool. And what you do in pool, when you hustle somebody, you, you cheat. <laughs> I mean, that's really what you're cheating. They don't know that you're cheating. And so if people have to cheat to win, that's think, right. think about what folk had to do to win. They had to do voter suppression, right. racist gerrymandering, felony disenfranchisement, get billions of, 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 of pornographic sums of money put into the political process, go to Russia, we think, they had to do all that to win. That is not a sign of your weakness. Mm. Progressives, those of you who believe in transformational justice, transformational power, that actually is a sign of your strength because it says that they are afraid of a room like this. Look around this room, black, brown, Native American, gay, straight, everybody's in here. And when everybody is in here, is at the polls and, 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 and in the streets and demanding change and running for office, we can see a fundamental transformation of this country. All right, we're going to enter the right lane and soon exit. So there's just oh close, we're close. I'm going to combine several questions here into one. So how do we include people with disabilities, undocumented people, the racism of neglect that we currently see with respect to Puerto Rico, and um, the issue of guns, gun violence, in this conversation of moral economy? I think we take a cue from Coretta Scott King. You know, a lot of people talk about Martin, but they forget Coretta traveled 1,600 miles immediately in the weeks following her husband's death to keep the movement going. We should never forget that. And Coretta said something when she was asked one day, um, what is violence? Um, your husband was shot with a 30 six and his jaw was blown off and his neck was severed, what is violence? And it is said that Coretta said, that is a form of violence. But she said violence is also denying people's culture. Violence is denying people access to public education and college. Violence is, is, is denying the disabled. Mm -hmm. Violence is is not paying people living wait their right fair wages. Violence is not giving workers rights. And she went down a list of things. And then she ended by saying, and there's one more form of violence, and that is an apathetic attitude that refuses to address all these other forms of violence. So I, I don't mean, 
I, I don't mean to, to be terse about the answer, but we have to include it. And we have to show the inter interlocking and the intersectionality of it. So, for instance, on the Poor People's Campaign, on that first Monday, when we have actions in 30 states and the District of Columbia, on, May, on the mo day after Mother's Day, Monday after Mother's Day, the theme for that week is we won't be silent anymore. Children in poverty, women in poverty, and the disabled. It's an intentional connection, mm -hmm. right? That we're connecting our, our grievances, our protests. We're having a nonviolent confrontation with these systems, but we're also lifting up an agenda of hope. So as whoever wrote that question, what we just have to, we cannot survive in our silos. We have to work sometimes in silos, but if we don't see the same people that vote against voting rights, vote against living wages. The same people that vote against living wages, vote against health care. Same people that vote against health care, vote against dis more programs for the disabled. The same people that do that vote against, most of the time, the LGBT community and immigration reform. If they are cynical enough to be together, we must be smart enough and courageous enough to come together. It's just that simple. I'm glad um, when you talk about violence and what violence really is, and it's more than just shooting a gun at somebody, allowing people to die because they don't have health care, allowing children to suffer because they can't get an education. I want to remind you about what's going on in Puerto Rico mm. right now. I just saw the mayor of San Juan who's trying to do her best uh, in that territory. Puerto Rico, the people in Puerto Rico are American citizens. They are American citizens. And in very large numbers, actually, they have fought and died in America's wars. That's right. Now, here you have the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And in Puerto Rico today, we still have tens of thousands of people who still do not have electricity. Now, if there was a major storm or a hurricane in a wealthy community in America, do you think it would take six months to get the electricity turned on? I don't think so. Mm. Recently, we having and picking up what the Reverend was saying. What the goal of the Trump administration is about, it's not just these terrible public policies, health care and education and tax breaks for billionaires. The worst thing that he is attempting to do is to try to divide us up based on the color of our skin, our religion, where we came from. And when we think about all of the suffering that has gone on in this country in terms of racism and sexism and homophobia. Mm -hmm. And we have a president trying to divide us up. Our message to him is we as a nation have suffered too much. We are not going back to bigotry. We're going forward and we're coming together. That has got to be our message.
Two more questions. Um, this question is, what is something the press gets wrong about you? Yeah. And what is something you wish the press emphasized more? And this is signed by... Respond to that. <laughs> Appropriate. I guess I'm the burn or the feeling the burn. Trump's view of the media is it's all fake news. They're all liars. They're all out to get them. Nothing is accurate. Don't believe anything that you read or see or hear because it's all a lie. And obviously that's nonsense. We know that there are many reporters who work day and night and sometimes, by the way, die trying to cover wars and, and, and turmoil around the world. My criticism of the media is that too much attention is given to sensational issues like Stormy Daniels or who Trump fired yesterday or the latest tweet that he sent out today and they are not talking about the broad issues that impact tens of millions of Americans. For the last 40 years, the middle class of this country has been in decline and we've seen a massive growth in income and wealth inequality. Very rarely do you see that story talked about in the media. We are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a right. You don't see that story on the media. Climate change is wrecking, doing devastating harm to this country and around the world. Very rarely do you see that story. So my critique of the media is go where the people are. Talk about the pain of the people, not Donald Trump's last tweet. Well, I would say amen to that, <laughs> and, but also I would say I would encourage the media to push um, um, both political parties, and um, I would love to see the media do some forums where impacted people were the questioners. I, I would love to see a forum where all presidential candidates had to face poor people. Huh? And working people. I think we've got, to, if you're going to change the narrative, you've got to change the narrator sometimes yeah. mm. and amplify these voices. Um, um, the, the next, the, the other piece I would also, and I don't know about the media, but about saying thing about me, I mean, I, um, um, there's certainly some media, you know, that sometimes would make a statement that's called the Moral Monday movement. And they think just because a black person is leading, it's a black movement. And then when a white person is leading, it's a progressive movement. And, and I just say to them, how do you see 100,000 people out on the mall in, in Raleigh and 65% of them are white? <laughs> and how do you see people going to jail in the state capitol and it's all mixed? But just because a black person happens to be the servant of that movement, you claim it's a black movement and not a moral movement. That sounds like the 116th. Thing. You know, it used to be if you had one sixteenth blood, you were considered black. <laughs> and so what, I'm, what I want to say is let's look at what's really going on. But I want to go to one other point that, that, that was mentioned. Because I agree, we have a saying down here, forward together. <laughs> and what part of that means is that we recognize, you know, we know this is not the first time America has struggled 
with racism in the White House. A hundred years before Bannon was there, mm -hmm. Woodrow Wilson played Birth of a Nation to his staff. <laughs> and Birth of a Nation was written by a man from North Carolina, a state senator, a Baptist. He wrote it, he, went, he lived in Shelby, North Carolina. So anybody that says, Lord, this is there's so much racism in Britain, you don't know American history. Um, but we also have to be careful that, and, and, and I think Senator Sanders has said and others have said it, that we don't equate good time before Trump, that somehow things were all right because the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013. Uh, since 2010, 23 states passed voter suppression laws. Um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Democrats blocked my jobs bill that came up. So we have to be honest with ourselves that we don't we, our hope is not just um, BT before Trump. <laughs> That's not our hope. And so part of it is to say we had come some ways, but there's a book out now by Jean Theo Harris where she talks about the mistelling of civil rights history. You know, the, the, mis, the way in which people misappropriate civil rights history. A lot of times it's done on King Day, mm -hmm. where people act like, you know, such and such and all was well. And no, 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 no. The fact is that when you look statistically, Trump is a symptom of a deeper moral malady. He used a constituency that had been cultivated 50 years. But here's the hope. The Southern strategy, developers of the strategy of the Southern strategy that they believe would not only impact the South, but would also impact enclaves of the North and the Midwest. Because you know, Bernie, what they did was they said, if we can control 13 Southern states, we can control 171 electoral votes from the beginning, which means we only need 99 electoral votes from the other 37 states. That was the plan. But they couldn't do it unless they split black and white people and brown people apart from one another who needed to be allies. But this is what you should know. They only thought originally they could do it for 50 years. Here's the answer. This is the 50th year. Which means that, and, and, and I often say about the election of President Obama, it wasn't about so much about him as an individual. What scared the extremists was not even President Obama. It was when electorates came together in Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia and exposed the breaking of the Southern strategy, exposed that you can get black and white and brown people together in the South and in other places around. What this recent stuff has done is tried to go, go backwards and, and stop that. But what they're really trying to do is stop a future that ultimately cannot be stopped it's like in South Africa when they used to say, only a dying mule kicks the hardest. So the hope is, my friends, we are the generation, and more so you are the generation that can break the stranglehold of the Southern strategy on the politics of America and open up a fresh, progressive, um, uh, transformative movement. But you've got to believe this. Every progressive policy today that we hold dear was seen impossible a hundred years ago. And then a few people said, we're going to believe and we're going to fight for what we believe. Let me just add to that.
just within the last year, people in Birmingham, Alabama, largest city in Alabama, elected a progressive African-American mayor. People in Jackson, Mississippi, elected a progressive young African-American mayor. The world is changing. That's right. And our job is to accelerate that change. That's right. You both have a final word. We're going to bring it back to Dr. King, where we began. His last book is Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? And we know that he wrote a letter, really, to the church, to white ministers from the Birmingham jail. And so the, this question is, what would Dr. King's letter be to us today? Well, look, I, I, first of all, let me thank all of you all for coming tonight. Um, I have to believe that Dr. King would still be saying that there's a need for some maladjusted people. <laughs> he said that in that letter to Birmingham. People who are never adjusted to injustice, who never become comfortable and okay with oppression. Um, I have to believe he would still say we have to deal with racism, militarism, and poverty, and re remind us that we may not fix those things in every generation, but in every generation somebody has to work on them. I believe he would add ecological devastation and, um, and, um, and, and, and challenging this false moral narrative of religious uh, nationalism that says if you're against gay people, if you're against abortion, if you're for prayer in the school, if you're for tax cuts and if you're for gun rights, then that's the, those are the moral issues. I think Dr. King would say, no, no, the, the deep moral issues of faith and of our Constitution are justice and love and truth and, and, the, and, and caring for the general welfare of people and lifting people up. I have to believe, Luke, that he would, he would say to us, still, nothing would be more tragic than to turn back now. I have to believe he would say to America, uh, it is a form of, dem of, of sickness, uh, social sickness, for people to get elected, and when they get elected, they basically get free health care, but then they don't want the people that elected them to have the same thing. <laughs> I mean, we pay for the health care of every senator, every congressperson. I, I think he would fundamentally say that it's a form of sickness uh, to, to know that 43.5% of your population is either poor or working poor. And yet, it is not a major discussion on the social consciousness of the country. I think he would say, how in the world can a nation of immigrants be denying immigrants? And how can you want to put laws on the books that if those laws were on the books, your own great-grandmama wouldn't have been able to come in the country? And I, but I think then he would say, but it's not an incurable sickness that we ought to antidote. I think he would, I hope he would say something I tried to say probably not so well, but that whenever the heart of a nation is, goes into arrhythmia and po politicians choose to be cruel and not caring and preachers choose to be mean and not moral, there must be an emergency team 
that brings out the moral defibrillators and revives the pulse and the heart of this nation. I think that Dr. King would want us to remember what he says. I might not get there with you, but you, as a people, not just a black people, but as a people, will get there together. And I really believe, finally, that, that we have to decide that there's a reason why all of us are alive together in this moment. And that not only is the future depending on us, but the present is calling us. And if we answer the call, history will write that we didn't turn back and we didn't give up and we didn't stand down. But history will, will record that there was a generation that pushed America into a third reconstruction and helped it become a little bit closer to that promise of being a more perfect nation. I'm willing to try that. Well, that's hard to follow. <laughs> I think that we have to remember what an extraordinary person King was and the incredible courage that he showed. And I think if there is a lesson to be learned from that is that we may not be as courageous as King, we may not be as good organizers as Dr. King, as smart as Dr. King. But what he said over and over, and we heard about it tonight, is you can't sit back and just complain. Right. You have got to jump into the arena. And once you start jumping into that arena, it is amazing how quickly things change. What the establishment, economic and political, wants you to believe is that change is impossible, that you are impotent, that you have no power. But what we have seen in the last several decades, whether it was just a few months ago with these young people from Parkland, they stood up and the legislature in Florida had to listen to them because they were morally right and they were mobilizing people. And what Dr. King said is that we are a common humanity, not black, not white, not Latino, in a difficult moment in history, American history, he said, take a look at what is happening in Vietnam, what we are doing to people of color in Vietnam, an unpopular position at that moment. So I believe what his mission was about was understanding that we share a common humanity, that we all want good things for our kids, for the planet, 
and that the only way we go forward is we overcome these ugly barriers that history has placed in front of us because of the color of our skin or the country we came from or our sexual orientation or our religion. We are a common humanity and when we stand together we can do beautiful things for our country and for the world. Thank you all for being here this evening. You can find more about Senator Bernie Sanders at his website, uh, berniesanders.com, for Reverend Dr. Barber on breachrepairs.org, more about the chapel and the pews. Hey, beautiful job. First, I want to say thanks to all of those who made this evening possible to set up the table, to pour the water, to run the sound, everyone that made this possible. We thank you. What we heard at the beginning was not just singing, but sanging. I want to thank Miss Yara Allen for her gifts this, more, this, this evening. Again, let's thank Senator Sanders and the Reverend Dr. William Barber for sharing their wisdom tonight. Have a great evening and go in peace.